Hello, friends. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Dr. Dan Engel. He's an MD, the founder and medical director of Kuya Institute for Transformational Medicine, and an author. For the last 50 years, MDMA has been illegal, whilst psychological trauma and depression has been mostly treated by trying to negate their symptoms through medication. After decades of research and lobbying, we're finally on the verge of being able to treat the root causes of psychological pain by using the very same drug which has been around since 1912. Today, expect to learn what an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session is actually like, what makes MDMA such a useful therapeutic tool, the difference in effectiveness between MDMA and current psych meds, what the future of its availability looks like, and much more. It does feel quite surprising to speak to someone who is so far down the plant medicine and holistic health route, but also has all of the typical Western doctor of medicine qualifications. Dan's been on the board for a ton of companies as their director of medicine, but he's also very, very interested in what plants can do and taking a more Eastern and more traditional approach to how we view our health. And also, I really want to do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. It sounds, it sounds great to be honest. I mean, it's just a fa- it sounds like an awesome way to spend an afternoon. And uh, Let me know what you think at ChrisWillX, wherever you follow me, Instagram, Twitter, etc., etc. And if you enjoy this episode, just share it with a friend and make sure that you've hit subscribe. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, Everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've won Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by 
AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation, vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days. And if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Dr. Dan Engel. Oh yeah, also... The information provided in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical recommendation, diagnosis or treatment. The use of information in this podcast is at one's own discretion and is not an endorsement of use given the complexity inherent in these medicines and the current variable widespread illegality of their usage. Enjoy. Dr. Dan Engel, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Chris. Thanks for having me on, man. I am very, very happy to have you here. How do you describe what you do for work? Uh, these days, the conceptual frame of that is transformational medicine, which incorporates a lot of different things, and we could dissect that out, but I'd say that's the gist of it. All right. How many MDMA-assisted psychotherapy sessions have you done, like that you've sat with or facilitated? Oh, on or off the record? <laughs> uh, we're definitely on the record now, um, but you can inc- you can include whatever you want. Yeah, um, I have facilitated, I don't know now, uh, several hundred different medicine sessions, and I don't know if I've even kept a track of which ones are which different medicines. Um, historically, I've facilitated with quite a few different medicines. For people in different contexts, sometimes individual, sometimes group, um, sometimes in the states, sometimes out of the states. Um, there's a variety of different contexts where we can do that legally, whether it's in a religious context or if it's in a retreat context in places where medicines are legal and used. Um, I live down in South America outside of Iquitos, Peru, for about a year studying with ayahuasca uh, in an apprenticeship. And that was 15 years ago when there wasn't much really known or understood or appreciated about ayahuasca. And at that time, I really started to get into the the curiosity and the the fascination with how you have different levels of people who can be supportive to another going through a process. You have sitters, you have therapists, i.e. facilitators facilitators in more of kind of a Western psychological framework. And then you have trackers you know, trackers that that really can pick up the subtle nuances of the landscape and help people rescue those 
lost parts of themselves. What are your credentials? A medical doctor. Yeah, I've gone through um, medical school here in the States. Uh, my, so that was in San Antonio where I grew up. Uh, I did my psychiatry residency in Denver. Uh, that was three years. Then I did, uh, two psych fellowships, one in forensic psych and one in child psych and finished that up in Portland. And I've medical, I've been the medical director for, let's see, eight different centers, um, up to now and to the eve of what we were just talking about launching Kuya in about two weeks. Is it rare for somebody in the plant medicine world to have this degree of Western clinical credentials as well? Historically, it's been very rare. Uh, thankfully, it's growing because to, uh, in my experience, and, and when you go through medical school and residency, you end up studying all the variety of fields and then you specialize. And in the different specialty fields, as I was vetting what I wanted to get into, in my experience, two of the most pessimistic fields are neurology and psychiatry. And those are the two fields that I ended up studying in because they were the most fascinating. And they have really revolutionized since my medical training 20 years ago. And the most exciting thing in mental health care right now is psychedelic therapies, because for once, we have really strategic, pretty consistently successful therapeutics that get down to root cause issues versus treating the symptoms, which has its place too, for sure. It's good to be able to support people easing their suffering. But we also want to be able to use the therapeutic tools that really get down to the causative factors the symptoms would be your Paxils, your zolofts your ssris yeah yeah and with the medical model that we have uh, psychiatry you know psyche means soul it, it translates to that terminology historically it means mind too and there are various aspects of the mind one of which is this connection with soul and you know the, a soul is to spirit as a drop is to the ocean you know we all have this underlying experience of what animates our being and we as a field of psychiatry and psychiatrists have largely sold out to our role as a spokesperson and a physician for the soul to the pharmaceutical industry and it's not to make that wrong it's just to say that that's a particular orientation we've kind of maxed out the benefit at least when you look at the numbers and the data um and if somebody's standing on the ledge and all they have is antidepressants and antipsychotics and neuropsychopharmaceuticals available to them, I say, well, use the medicines. Those are medicines. Every medicine has its place. Pharmaceuticals have their place. Um, just like going to the ER has its place and going into the OR if you need to get under the knife or in that kind of Western triage care, like let's put you back together. We're really good at that. That's what we do really well. In Western medicine, however, we're really shitty at preventative care and chronic care management. And so we're seeing this whole reclamation of psychiatry as this deeper aspect of getting to know the, the root cause issues and having tools that can get into the nitty gritty, ideally being facilitated with people who are good, trained, experienced facilitators, and to let the medicine work its magic. Because oftentimes, as facilitators, if, 
if we create the safe environment, the safe set and setting, and people can really relax into it, trust it, surrender into it, then we offer the medicine and the medicine just does its magic. And then, and then it's as much of the facilitator's role to not get in the way, <laughs> to not try and mess with it or think that they need to do something because the medicine is pretty phenomenal at being able to help people get in touch with the deepest aspects of their being. The medicine that we're going to be talking about today mostly is MDMA. What's the story of that? How did it come about? Yeah, it's a fascinating one. MDMA has followed the trajectory of many different medicines. Um, you know, this whole field of psychedelic therapy is now gaining more and more traction. And we could talk about the different pantheon of medicines. You have level one medicines, level two medicines, level three medicines. And just like you wouldn't go into the gym and put 300 on the squat rack and unless you had worked up to that, it's also advisable to not start at a level three medicine until you okay so what a what a one two and a three what would be some examples of what sits in those brackets yeah um so before even that it's good to set the foundation right get your stance correct really understand your posture alignment and and that would look like meditation and that would look like self-regulation level zero and that might yeah, that's ground zero that's the solid foundation and that might look like going into a float tank and seeing if you can hold your stuff together in a float tank. Because if you can't hold it together in a float tank, it might be pretty hard to hold it together in a ceremony. And so what does it look like when we find our conscious ability to chase our growth edge and lean into our fear and get intimate with that fear and breathe through that and learn self-regulation in the midst of fear and in the midst of our core wounding? It's hard for us to do our tracking on our own. Like we don't self-observe super well as a species. We're good at, well, relatively depending on training and kind of our gestalt or our constitution, ability to be able to do that for others. But traditionally, it's we're, we don't do that super well for ourselves. And part of that's because we have these awesome ego defenses that keep our wounds kind of at bay. And when we start to learn that, the the things that the core wounds and the things that we've really walled ourselves off from they're actually available to become our teachers they're they're assets to us as our as our weaknesses become our best strengths etc and so this foundational experience setting the the firm um, ground matrix so to speak so that the new growth can happen is oftentimes through these neuroregulation, self-regulation practices. Meditation is just one example of that. And so once we start to be able to self-regulate, then we can opt into having more altered state experiences and still be able to find our center or maintain a, a state of available curiosity in the midst of the the ego's reflexive position to move away from that which it fears what would be an example of some of that trauma right so eventually this is part of the preparation so mdma to answer your question would be a level one medicine okay and i can share a little bit about some of the others and in that preparation process we can onboard the person going through that to understand that trauma can be a gateway to transformation like Barbara Marks Hubbard says, crisis precedes transformation every time. And when we go through this experience of being reclaimed into wholeness, which means bringing all of these separate parts home 
like the traumatized parts of ourself that might have been locked away after trauma. And trauma doesn't have to mean like being in in war and on the battlefield or having a near-death experience in a head-on collision or a variety of other light, very obvious life-threatening experiences. That's classic PTSD. But there's also this growing awareness now over the last couple of decades of what we would call complex PTSD, which is more of the accumulation of adverse childhood experiences from very young, oftentimes which are before memory. Right? So we don't really consolidate language with memory centers until we're like four or five, six years old. So, so much that happens before that, which we're still configuring our identity and persona and, and view of ourself in the world happens in these early formative years, and we might not have access to it. So, you're, so saying, that, you're saying that we can have something prior to our ability to recall it totally. as a child, which has impacted us in terms of our trauma totally. throughout the rest of our lives? Totally. How much of the trauma that you see with the people that you work with comes from that pre-memory phase versus the post-memory phase? 70, well, part of it's a selection bias because I don't only work with veterans. Um, but if I was to take a random sampling of the population, I'd say it's about 60 to 70% complex PTSD versus classic PTSD. Presumably the and complex PTSD is not just the pre-memory phase though that there will be the small eroding and chipping away over time that contributes right. to that too right and and that small chipping away oftentimes is the ero that's a good term the erosion of a sense of safety and security in the world a sense of being able to trust our our caregivers, whoever that, that was, if that was our parents or our grandparents or however we were raised, can we trust the bigger people? When we're a little person, the bigger people just seem like gods. Can we trust those gods? Can we trust a god? What's our relationship with God? What's our relationship with life? What's the relationship with the planet? These are the, the factors that go into establishing a sense of safety and security, and that can get eroded through these experience. And so it doesn't all have to be like in the first four, four or five formative years. It can be later too. Like for example, say I'm in elementary school and I have a pretty safe, secure a, a sense of my family and um, my attachment style. And uh, I haven't been exposed to a whole lot of trauma. I've been loved a lot. Say my family moves to a totally different culture, totally different community. And, and maybe I'm on the smaller side and now I just start getting pummeled by the, the guys at school. That's going to leave a mark, right? So, but maybe it wasn't like I got so thrashed that I almost died and there was obvious trauma. Maybe it was just bullying. And, 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 and not to say just bullying, not to mean that bullying is just this, oh, piddly thing that doesn't have consequences that can be significantly detrimental to a growing person's sense of themselves in the world and how they trust themselves and and maybe if if that gets utilized as a platform like maybe i come home i tell that to my parents and my parents are like okay yeah i could see that that sucks you know tell us about it how does that feel 
let's get you into self-defense classes. Let's get you into martial arts. Let's get you. Maybe it's it's another initiation, right? Crisis precedes transformation every time. So maybe it was able to get worked through and dealt with then, but maybe it didn't. Maybe I didn't feel like I could tell anybody or my parents were thrashed themselves because they moved and then we lost all of our money or they were having trauma too. And so we can just see all the different radically complex and beautifully intricate scenarios and characteristics of life that would help us evolve into a particular experience of ourself. So that's level one. So MDMA would be a level one medicine. And this is not an exhaustive list. But if we think about level one medicines versus level two versus level three, basically the differential would be in part. Level one medicines are typically easier to navigate and with a higher likelihood of having a positive experience if you only had a sitter supporting you. In a safe environment, maybe you had facilitation or maybe your sitter knew how to support it more than just helping you stay safe, which is the minimum viable product, so to speak, to entering the space is make sure that you have safety, make sure that you know, and by, you know, I, I should probably also preface, like not everybody's ready to have a medicine experience. Not everybody's ready to have a psychedelic process occur. And that might be for a variety of reasons too, that we could speak about, like what are the contraindications? So, Ease of entry into the space, ease of experience of the space, high likelihood of a positive outcome, relatively short process, uh, I'll speak about that a little bit further, and relatively low need for potential intervention by those that are helping to hold the container. So level one medicines, MDMA, ketamine, psilocybin. Psilocybin would be in that list. Dose dependent. Yep. Yeah. Dose dependent LSD. That would be on the longer side, I'm going to guess. We're talking sort of upwards of maybe 10 hours there. Right. So low dose LSD, you start to have what's called a psycholytic experience. So kind of like ketamine in that you start to open up what Aldous Huxley would describe as the doors of perception. You start opening up the gateways. And low dose LSD... 100 micrograms, 150 micrograms, depending. That's also dependent on a bit weight distribution, um, a bit person's experience in altered states, um, a bit their kind of metabolic profile, a bit their psychological armoring, because you can shut down experiences too if you just will them away, so to speak. Unless you jump up to like 500 to 600 micrograms of LSD, that's just along for the ride, yeah. Right. And that's a level three process. Okay. Dif- you know, the differential with psilocybin, you have a one, two gram experience. That's a level one, typically for most people. You have a three to four ex- gram experience. That's a level two for most people. You have a five gram and above experience. Now you're getting into level three. So some of that's dose dependent. And then the fifth medicine is cannabis. Cannabis is an amazing medicine we tend to not use it much as a medicine these days because it's now going so widely recreational. It, it, very, There are very many people who are still using it as a medicine and so many more and more people are using it as a recreational tool. And I'm not here to say that that's wrong or bad. I'm just talking about the differential between a recreational engagement with a medicine versus a therapeutic engagement. 
And in my experience, no other medicine highlights the differential there more so than MDMA. Because you can take MDMA and go to a rave and hang out with your friends and it can just be so fun, ecstatic states, really high. And oh, by the way, it's still illegal. So you have to know legalities and maybe you're not even ready because it can be a, a, a bit much depending on, again, dose. Um, and also purity, because people getting stuff off the street that's called ecstasy, that's not MDMA. It's oftentimes cut with a lot of stuff. And if you're working with pure molecule, then it can, yes, it, it engenders that joyful process. That's, a, that's an ecstatic state, which we are driven for ecstasis. We're driven for transcendence. And that's a very different set and setting and an intention going in versus a therapeutic setting using the same molecule. But I've had so many people tell me that the experience between a recreational process and a therapeutic process felt to them like it was a totally different molecule that they're working with. Totally different experience, totally different outcome. That's interesting. I'm someone that's partaken in many of those substances, but most of them during a party setting. So MDMA, especially throughout my 20s, a lot of that. I don't think I've ever taken MDMA and not had it with alcohol, ever. I would be surprised. And I'm, you're talking like 30 times, 50 times. Mm -hmm. You could, you could, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened to be 100 and I've just forgotten another 50. Um, <laughs> but it's never, been, it's never been with that in mind. Okay, so that's mm -hmm. what sort of the dose-dependent stages would be. Are there any compounds that aren't in that aren't in level one but are in level two and three i know that some of them we can have same so, compounds different doses yeah, yeah. But are there so other compounds yep and i want to highlight something you just said because it's a fascinating experience that happens for most of us the two biggest things that we don't teach our youth sex and drugs and the two biggest things that they're going to explore on their own because we're driven for creativity procreation exploration rebellion and and hormones are coming online and we're meant to be rebels at that age. And if we don't express our healthy rebellion at the teenage level, it comes out later in adulthood and it looks really fucking messy. Right. So unfortunately, we don't onboard our youth with an understanding of how, how to appreciate and use these medicines and these altered states of consciousness and that exploration in a healthy, good way. And, and so that it doesn't come out in a distorted or destructive way. Same thing with sex. And having a conscious, in, engaged, educational platform around healthy sex. And, you know, I, I suppose we could use a bit of a term that's been used more and more lately, like a sex-positive culture, sex-positive educational platform. And so you're highlighting something really important. is like we're going to explore altered states. 90% of high school adults uh, in the U.S., 90% of high school seniors say that they have experienced altered states of consciousness with some degree of um, significance more than once and with something that was not legal because in high school, you're not even supposed to drink alcohol, at least in the States. Um, so it could be Cannabis could be alcohol, could be MDMA, could be LSD, could be a whole sort of thing. So that's a fairly significant number, right? And, and that's in a setting where you're telling people not to most of the time. Like, don't do that. Friday commercial. I don't know if you remember the, the this is your brain on drugs Friday commercial. I grew up in that era. 
and it worked. But it was okay for at least us in our culture to drink alcohol. We just couldn't smoke dope because you're going to end up in a stupid puddle for the rest of your life if you did. And so when we have the opportunity to, to change the narrative and actually have a, an adult conversation with our youth in a transparent way that lets them ask questions and get curious about it so that they have ownership of the process and it doesn't have to happen in, in the shadows, so to speak, then now we're going to start to have a, a new orientation to consciousness. And that's part of the reason that the war on drugs was so popular in the 70s that took everything and put it into Schedule 1, including MDMA. Uh, that happened a little bit later, but like LSD, psilocybin, like Nixon administration, the public enemy number one was the drugs. And so war on drugs happened. So to then peel it back to what you were talking about in regards to the recognition, you've worked with this tool in a different setting with other tools on board. Alcohol can be an amazing tool too, but in our culture, we typically use it extraordinarily poor, poorly, mindlessly, um, and it creates an opportunity for people to continue to numb out to their pain because we don't have yet a medical system that starts to get to the root cause of the trauma. So I get curious for you in that kind of recognition, like this is a medicine you've known pretty regularly throughout your 20s, but in a very different cocktail of experience and um, state-dependent intention. So then to work with it as a therapeutic tool, you might quite likely have a very different experience. And MDMA is a phenomenal medicine in how it engenders a therapeutic process. Because if you were to construct a neurochemical profile for a particular agent that's so good consistently at helping to work with trauma, you'd be hard pressed to, to find one better than MDMA. Why? Because it's so phenomenal. So the way it works in this, in, in neurochemically, neuroanatomically, um, psychophysiologically, it stimulates certain areas of the brain as well as creating this awesome um, opening process through uh, the neuroendocrine cascade, so the neurohormonal cascade. It releases and floods the system with something called oxytocin. Oxytocin is our bonding hormone. It's the hormone that mothers secrete in breast milk when they're lactating and breastfeeding their children, and, and, and they're in this unification experience, this union experience. So. Oxytocin is very much a hormone of union, union with ourselves, union with the divine, union with others. And it also creates this, this neurochemical cascade through primarily serotonin and norepinephrine that it allows the fear center to relax. That's also part of the oxytocin effect because when you're flooded with union, fear typically is... Uh, relaxed and vice versa. It's hard to be flooded with union when your fear is really heightened. And so the amygdala starts to relax. The ego defenses start to relax. So our fear centers start to relax in the middle of creating this really hyper alert state. So the neuro, the norepinephrine neuroendocrine experience of the prefrontal cortex allows this like supreme witness to come on board 
and you can track really well. I mean, you've experienced like it's a very energizing medicine. So it brings energy into this. It's also an amphetamine derivative. So it it tends to kick up the the energetic profile. It feels like you've had a couple of shots of coffee. And it also helps to impregnate a greater connection neuroanatomically that that behaviorally expresses itself as improved memory because you get a really heightened connection between the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus where we hold our memories. So what so three things just happened. I've I've relaxed my fear center, the amygdala is downregulated. I have a better witness because the prefrontal cortex is online and I have a better memory because the hippocampus is more online. So in the midst of all of that with with my ego defenses now relaxed and my unification, that bonding hormone alive, now you've created this amazing neurochemical soup that allows the curiosity and the investigation of the things that we've held back, that we were scared from, maybe that we didn't even know was there. The trauma starts to naturally bubble to the surface. And those things that I wouldn't have let myself acknowledge or become intimate with before are now coming up and we can work with it. So it creates a very appropriate environment for a therapist to work in. Bingo. Especially for trauma. I mean, pretty much for anything because MDMA is an amazing medicine for communication. It was in the early 80s used for couples therapy predominantly because it's just so good at helping us drop our bullshit meter and get real, but also speak from a place of truth without so much defensiveness or animosity or um, you, the, the, the subtle communication factors that maybe it's passive aggressive, maybe they're barbs, maybe they're subtle sabotage, maybe it's like all of that starts to now also relax. All of those historical ways that maybe we were sideways or distorted in our communication now we have the opportunity to speak with more truth clarity and love and so it's a great couples therapy agent what about the story of mdma how did it get yeah, created so, and then we'll come back and i'll say more about level two level three etc so um i think it was 1912 methylene dioxy um methamphetamine so that's what MDMA stands for. And it wasn't used for 50 or so years until uh, 50s, 60s. It started becoming more widely used and appreciated. Uh, and it became a, a, a strong psychotherapeutic tool in the 70s. And Why, why was 80s. it created in the first place? Um, it was created... Yeah, I, I don't know what initially the impulse was that we're going to create this particular molecule. And it wasn't for a psychotherapeutic aim back then in the early 1900s. We weren't really looking at psychopharmacology at that time as a tool into like doorways of the mind, so to speak. And then it got resurrected. Uh, and that has its own kind of colorful story that I'm probably not the best to describe because there's a lot of... Um, circumstance and a lot of iterations to that story of like how it just magically kind of came back onto the scene. And as I understand, once it became more widely used and appreciated psychotherapeutically, that was also in parallel late fifties into the sixties, 
coming into our curiosity and the psychedelic revolution that was happening at that time, psychedelics in general, and it it didn't get as much appreciation as things like, you know, LSD was the front runner um, of the counterculture movement in the late 60s. And then kind of backdrafting all off of LSD's kind of entry into the space was MDMA as not so much a psycho psychoactive psychedelic experience. Like LSD is a classic psychedelic. Psilocybin is a classic psychedelic. Uh, DMT-based medicines. Ayahuasca is a classic psychedelic. Uh, MDMA is not. MDMA is described as an empathogen or intactogen, which means it engenders empathy. And it has all of those neurological and neurochemical aspects and kind of attributes that I mentioned. And because it's so fascinatingly powerful in its ability to help people speak their truth from a place of being unguarded and essentially more open and available to contact that truth and then communicate it, it's an amazing psychotherapeutic tool. So it was being used more and more by the psychotherapeutic community in the 70s and into the early 80s um, and never should have been in Schedule 1. Schedule 1 means that's our, in the United States, classification of, of medicines that have no known benefit and they're highly addictive. And those would be also, we could call street drugs like heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine. Um, but now we're talking about only a few iterations off of the classic meth or crystal meth, which just wrecks a lot of people's lives. You have not so far away from that, something like MDMA, which is saving a lot of people's lives. So medicines oftentimes have not only their sacred place at the table, like all medicines, once we get to understand what it's for, then we can understand how to use it in a good way. And we can also start to not just bastardize something like heroin, which is very similar to morphine, which is very good for helping many people with intractable pain syndrome. I got part of my backgrounds in neurology and I've had a host of concussions and I've I helped people with traumatic brain injuries and some of the centers I've run in the past. That's been our focus and neuropathic pain sucks. Having a chronic nerve injury, like a structural nerve firing that is like an itch that you can't ever scratch. It's this constant pain. Like sciatica is a common experience of a neuropathic pain. And most people have sciatica, right? Yeah, that really sucks. Well, if, if you have that ongoing all the time, it's a really rough day. And so that can be another aspect and a potential trajectory for transformational experience and being able to work with your mind. And it's also helpful to do that with an opioid pharmaceutical like morphine. Morphine was the first one on a battlefield medicine. It was very good. But then you have something like heroin that's just a little bit different, right? And now we have the differential between a medicine and a drug. Or if you look like something like cocaine, Ritalin is pharma pharmacologically very much like cocaine, right? And we give that almost like M&Ms to youth to help them sit still, little Johnny in the back who's just got a lot of mental energy, maybe a lot of physical energy, and he learns by moving his body in space. Everybody learns a little bit different. There's like at least seven different primary learning styles. So when we have a one-size-fits-all educational model and we make kids 
the problem because they're not just going to sit there like little minions and stamp widgets for an hour at a time because that's not how they're geared. Then we start to drug them with things that aren't that pharmacologically different than the things that we're bastardizing and putting people in way in, in pr a privatized prison system for long periods of time. So that we just start to see how all of this is going through this massive transformation. It's not just the medical industry through psychedelics. It's also the privatized prison system and going through a just social justice reform. It's also the political system. It's also who's it's, right. So there's a law, a large downstream effect. When we have something like the reclamation of truth telling in what the war on drugs is actually about, then it calls us into action to make sure that we're doing our due diligence to make sure that that doesn't happen again to the best of our ability. Because it's very clear that the Nixon administration, public enemy number one was, the, was, was drugs, but that was still smoke and mirrors and kind of like the front story for the fact that they wanted a control mechanism for the minorities. And they knew that they, if they could connect the black community with heroin and they could connect the hippies with cannabis and make both of those illegal, then they could marginalize both of those communities and continue to control like status quo. And so this whole war on drugs was not based in data and science. It was based on political motivations. And we're seeing something similar in the, con in, the in, in the current global crisis with COVID or, or with the last political election. It's hard to know which data to trust on which side of the poll because you can have really good data that sounds like legitimate truth and you can have on one side and you have really good data that sounds like legitimate truth on the other side. And so this is where so much confusion and a sense of paralysis can happen. It's like, fuck, I don't know now who to trust and where to go. And like, what, what are your people like yourself doing podcasts and like giving information to the masses? This is where it's a grassroots movement to start um, in mass demanding more truth telling and then finding those. Uh, if we can't trust the, the political leaders and those that quote, quote unquote above us are in charge, then we'll go to one another. And so MDMA, just like most of the psychedelics, is coming online right now, as one of my teachers would describe them as clarigens. So MDMA now is going through this legal, um, let, how would I describe this? It's uh, its own transformation. Like it's a legal it, renaissance. Yeah, yeah, we could call it a, a renaissance. Yeah, psychedelic therapy in general is going through a renaissance for sure. MDMA is even going through something interesting because it is such a, a North Star way shower of what's possible. Because it's because so it's effective, it's very safe. Right, yeah. right. It, though, you just hit it on the hit. Those are the two prime factors. It's so effective. So people hear the stories of transformation. It's so safe, so it's so clear that MDMA doesn't belong in schedule one. It's saving people's lives. It's helping people reclaim their trauma so as to be able to grow from it and through it and with it to become more whole humans. That's exactly what the field of psychiatry is meant to do. So it is this way shower of what our potential is in this renaissance. So I think that's a great word to use. 
let's get back to level and, let's get back to level two and three yeah. i want to i want to find out so what's in that yeah where we're going to go is legalization with mdma uh it's scheduled to become legal in the next 18 to 24 months largely legal for clinical use. use yeah 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 you just excited largely. a lot of people there thinking that it was going to be sold at the corner <laughs> shop right and that's a totally different orientation right because usually drugs they go to uh, legal therapeutic use and then potentially legal recreational use. Cannabis did that, right? No one can use it. And now you can use it if you have a diagnosis, chronic pain syndrome, blah, blah, blah. and now a lot of people are using it recreationally because there's a lot of money in it. Does this mean that there's so, going to be loads of dodgy street vendors on Venice Beach flogging MDMA cards? Like, oh, come and I get certainly you. hope not. Come and get your MDMA certainly, therapy card here. I certainly hope not. It I think there's going to be a much more concerted rollout with MAPS and MAPS's relationship with the feds and um, that you can, because uh, people won't have, like, in order to sell it on the streets, you'd have to have it, but nobody's going to be able to have it outside of a licensed facility. So it's going to be under, under high regulation. Yeah. And to, to an extent, we want that because we don't want to give any ammunition to the feds to prove their doubt that we're not ready for this, at least as a therapeutic tool. And then we can solidify that safety and then talk about recreational further down the road. So that's where we're headed. Um, we mentioned level one. Level two, typically a bit more variables to take into consideration, a bit more of an intense process with even an entry level experience um, can bring up more shadow work to be able to do internally. What does that mean? Um, shadow work. So like if your if your trauma started coming into the space, and part of this is because how the medicines are facilitated, the three level two medicines, ayahuasca, peyote, San Pedro, they're not typically done individually. They're usually done in groups like peyotes in a group setting, ayahuasca, San Pedro. It's not typically oriented for a person in the same kind of MDMA framework or therapeutic setting to do one-on-one -on work with, with those tools. You can, but historically, that's not its cultural context. And that's not the religious context that the UDV and Santo Daime and the peyote way church they don't hold it in the same kind of context and you don't necessarily have to hold it that way in order for it to be a legal sanctioned um church um congregational ceremony so to speak um but recognizing the lineage that these medicines come from are are procured and offered through a tapestry and a technology of consistent facilitation. So there's a reason why those medicines are facilitated that way and have been done that way for hundreds and hundreds of years. So something like ayahuasca, because it translates into the vine of the soul or the vine of death, um, and that's more of an ego death, not a physical death. So people typically going through an ayahuasca experience won't die. Um, but that's another indication too, that we have to be even more clear in our contraindications because level two experiences can bring up a lot of intense stuff 
and a, a person hasn't done a level one process or if they haven't kind of gotten their solidification of being able to regulate their nervous systems and they just pop into an IS ceremony, a lot of people have bad trips. It really depends on the setting, the facilitation, how much they're given, all of that. Um, and same thing with peyote and San Pedro, because they're so strong and they last so long, it could be an uncomfortable experience if people are having a, a rough time and you just have to sweat it out for a good eight to 10 hours because you might not have a facilitator immediately right there that you can just pull on like is usually how MDMA has worked. Usually it's in a group setting. So if you're having a hard time, you're typically going to have to just sit with it and be with it. And that's part of the benefit because it's like resistance training. Over time, we get better and better at being able to sit with our discomfort. And ayahuasca is my prime, I would call her as my primary teacher, the medicine that's had the strongest influence on my life. And when I came out of my psychiatry fellowship, had a clinic, was open for a couple of years, we were doing integrative psychiatry, helping people come off of psychiatric medication. So we were doing good work, but there was still a little bit of like the depth of it missing. And I was introduced to Ayahuasca Circle Underground about 15 years ago. And it, I learned more about myself in one weekend with Ayahuasca than I had in one decade of psychotherapy. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, where the fuck has this been? And why haven't I heard about it? I was both fascinated and pissed because I had spent t close to 20 years studying the mind and never come across this. And so I closed up my clinic and moved down to the jungle just because I was fascinated. As you do. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Um, so that I level two to the extent that if you're a facilitator or entry level, uh, if you're a sitter or an entry level facilitator, you can support people through a level one process pretty routinely, pretty successfully. But to facilitate ayahuasca, peyote or San Pedro, usually my teachers would go through a decade of training before they ever worked on behalf of another just consistently apprenticing, consistently learning, understanding the medicine, understanding the astral plane, understanding the energetic profile, understanding how to go into a person's field to be able to track what they're not able to see on their own, come back, present that, help them integrate it, and then dust off, clean off, so that we're not taking on their residue or the same, I'm not influencing their, their experience with my own impact. So there are so many different nuances that this kind of work and doing that level of curanderismo or vegetalismo or, you know, my teachers wouldn't even describe themselves as shamans because it's a term from a different culture. Um, but the healers of that traditional path are those that know how to make a right relationship with the medicines and, the, and the, the herbs, the plants, and be able to work side by side, hand in hand with that technology on behalf of a client or a group of people that is next level mastery. So that's why I put that in those in schedule or uh, level two. So then we have level three, DMT and Iboga. DMT, because nothing will invite your ego to die quite like DMT will, especially if it's in the smoked version of either an NDMT, 5-MeO-DMT, whether it's synthetic or organic, like from the Sonoran Desert Toad. It's so fast, it's so strong. It just catapults your, your ego straight out of your body and it can happen so fast that it feels really freaky. And I've worked with clients who had their first psychedelic state with a 5-MeO experience and, and were shattered 
for months afterwards. What does that because mean? Because shattered. It just blew their doors open. I guess we use that same kind of like gates of perception, doors of perception. Well, you can unlock the door or you can dynamite the door. Blast them off the hinges. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so that has a particular psychological, psychic and energetic impact. It really frays the energy body. And this gets more into like Ayurveda. If you're talking about the nadis or like the energetic body, um, or like astral tear in the field, so to speak, like it requires surgical intervention of a particular, like now we're, now we're being interventionists to the mind and to that degree of trauma, but it's not just psychological. There's a neurological, there's a neuroenergetic experience too. So we, in the worst case scenario, somebody gets their doors blasted open and they can get psychotic or have intractable insomnia and intractable insomnia will lead to psychosis eventually. And so we might need to use a psychopharmaceutical like antipsychotic, like Zyprexa, Seroquel, um, and the list is long, but just like, as examples. And that's where a, that's a good example of if we need to shut down the symptoms that we can, and so we have tools for that kind of intervention. Ideally, if we come back to the rubric, you don't start at level three. If I walked into a, I can't squat 300 pounds. I used to be able to, but I'm just not in, I'm not doing those kinds of exercises like I did before. I can perform in ways now that I didn't do before, but you have to understand where you're at and you have to work up to that level. So DMT, because it's so strong and it has that impact for creating trauma. And the last thing we want to do is that we're actually wanting to heal trauma and Iboga because it lasts so long and it's so arduous. How long is a boga? What's an iboga trip like? It's about 18 to 36 hours. 36 hours. Jesus fuck. <laughs> mine was both of mine were 40. Uh, and it's fascinating because it, it there's so much to do in that time. <laughs> there's lifetimes of work to do in that time, but it also is a really intense process. And the reason I said both of mine were 40, I did it, I was at a one center. So the reason I got into this work more kind of front and center, and it's in the front part of the dose of hope, is because my sister committed suicide. And that was from a long, long standing battle with depression and alcohol, all stemming from PTSD that really wasn't acknowledged and we didn't know much about it then. And that was also about 10 years ago. We didn't know, I didn't know. And I don't think we knew as a, as a culture as much about complex PTSD and, and MDMA wasn't as available then. And I was a Puritan in the ayahuasca path. So I didn't even know about MDMA. I didn't even know about Iboga. I was just doing my ayahuasca. Um, like a, like the, 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 I was still in school and I was just pure on that path. And then she left. I was like, fuck, man. I know there's more medicines available. Um, I wish I would have known more about all of the variety of medicines to be able to support her. Um, and so that's when I journeyed into Iboga. Because Iboga is the best medicine for addiction recovery on the planet, period. The best single agent. And it's because of how it works pharmacologically, also energetically, psychically, in the astral planes and beyond for sure, but predominantly how it works neurochemically. 
It works on 50 plus different receptor profiles. It goes in there like a Brillo pad and, and scrubs the opioid receptors clean. So if somebody goes through an Iboga experience or an Ibogaine experience, they don't have withdrawals and they don't have cravings. It's crazy. There's nothing else like that on the planet. And when I say they, it's not 100%. It's usually about 75, 80% of people don't have cravings and don't have withdrawals. And I ran a, I was the medical director of an Ibogaine Center in Mexico for a year. And it was just phenomenal to see people that had been daily users of heroin or pain meds that they couldn't get off of and just so scared to stop because the withdrawals are so strong. Or they tried so many times and failed. And now where there are people that have been daily users for 10 plus years go through one experience done. It just blew my mind about what's possible. And so I wanted to understand it first form. That was, I didn't get into medically directing that center until I had my own experience because I, I wanted to have my own experience first. I knew I wouldn't be able to support people going through a process if I hadn't had that experience. So I had an aboga experience down in Costa Rica. It was 40 hours. I was like, Whoa. that was just a fucking marathon. And then I had the, I had the thought like, wow, it can't be that way the next time. So I did it a few days later and it was still 40 hours. So not everybody's 40 hours, but man, it's, it's strong, long, beautiful. Um, Aubrey describes it. We were talking about a mutual friend of ours. He, he like, if you're an ant on God's tuning fork and he just goes pow and you're just vibrating uncontrollably at that cellular level, psychic level, somatic level for 18 plus hours. So it's a long ride. But it's fascinating too because it's an it's called what it's it's what's called an onirogen. So it's a dream medicine. It takes us into this dream time. So we have consistently this review of our principal life experiences. And the medicine will convey this communication with the deepest aspects of our own being, i.e. our soul, about what's in alignment in our life and what's out of alignment. And so it's very clear at the end of that what our marching orders are, what our homework is. And again, down at Crossroads, I we would see a lot of people that never had a psychedelic experience. So they're coming straight into a level three, but they're doing that in a very controlled environment. And because they're, there's massive risk if they don't do that treatment. Yeah. Because daily opioid use has a massive Compared risk. Compared with a bad trip. Continuing to use heroin every day seems like a right like walk in the park. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now you get a sense of kind, and that's by the way, that's nobody else's system or rubric. That's just mine, and and other people might have differing opinions. And and but this is where I get excited about having open label kind of open source conversations because we're creating the new system of transformational medicine, and that includes the understanding and ability to be able to assess which medicine to use for which person at which time. Talk me through what an MDMA-assisted psychotherapy session feels like from yeah. someone arriving at the place to getting in the chair to taking the drug. How's it administered? What happens? What are the sort of conversations? Take me through that. Totally. Well, that's why I wrote the book because there's a lot of information in there. <laughs> but the Cliff Notes version is – so the way that MAPS has done it, and I think they've done a good job, they've essentially set the – the process platform for MDMA is going to get rolled out. And 
and the success rate's phenomenal. If you look at phase one trials, 80, 83% success rate. Cure for chronic severe PTSD. Nothing like that on the planet. You look at phase two trials, and it's like 60, 65% cure rate. Still pretty good, a little bit lower. And then you're looking at phase three trials, and it's about in the middle, 75 plus percent. So we're looking at like two-thirds, three-fourths of all people with chronic severe PTSD go through two to three sessions, and they're done. This is compared with a 34% improvement rate, which is the other alternative. That's the standard of care. Standard of care is psychopharmaceuticals, talk therapy. And that has a 35, 40% improvement rate. So we're not, we're talking about a differential in cure rate versus improvement. So the numbers are even differential, but the, the exponentially different because we're talking about improvement versus cure. So the reason I say all of that is the prelude to your conversation, your question is because the, the data and those numbers are largely not just because of MDMA, because MDMA is so amazing. It's how it's offered and what's happening around the sessions too, because it's not just the sessions. You have 12 psychotherapy sessions interwoven with three medicine sessions, right? So you have three medicine sessions, you have three therapy, three therapy, three therapy, three therapy, before interspersed and then after the last one. So you have 12 psychotherapy sessions around three medicine sessions. So you have 15 sessions. And those medicine sessions are with both of your therapists because it's a dyad, man, woman, ideally. And the therapy sessions are oftentimes with dyads too. So, but not, it doesn't have to be. Uh, It's either your primary therapist or the dyad therapist. So now you've got so much investment and involvement in people like really in your business, but also helping you get clear on self-regulation, expectation, setting the stage, understanding what the process is going to be like. That's why I'm going to answer your question. But I want to just set the stage too. Like it's important for us to realize that when this medicine goes legal, it's going to be mandated to have that degree of psychotherapeutic engagement before, during, and after. And unfortunately, because insurance companies are not reimbursing for this right now, it's going to be like ten to $12,000 out of pocket. And now all of a sudden you've just now made this a very rare medicine that a chosen few are going to be able to pay for. So we're in the midst of rehabilitating the entire medical reimbursement system to be able to support those that need it the most to be able to have access. That's going to roll out over time, but there's a concerted effort to doing that right now. I'm going to guess that that cost can't change a massive amount because you require two people who are very experienced for a significant amount of time over 12 sessions, plus presumably background checks, testing, checking in with the client, so on and so forth. So the only way really that that cost can be brought down significantly is with adding more trainers in or more facilitators and more therapists into the system so that you can actually have a little bit more um, employment competition or it being just an assistance by insurance companies. I think both are going to happen. Yep. And I think I think also the cost is going to come down because some of that cost includes um, payment for research. And also there's and contribution to research from everybody's session yeah that's kind of cool that's kind of like a by by taking on the therapy yourself you contribute to the benefit of other people getting it in future that's quite altruistic and cool 
Right. It's kind of like phase one, two, and three studies have had that same kind of ethos. And that's what we do for for the benefit of medical knowledge and research. So that's the framework. What, is, what does it look like, feel like? So when you go through an MDMA session, it feels like you, you have the felt experience of remembering what MDMA is like. Really, it feels like a few Red Bulls or a lot of coffee, like your system's amped. Uh, your heart rate and blood pressure knock up about 20 points each. So one of the contraindications is heart disease. Um, another contraindication would be intractable epilepsy. Um, people on psychopharmaceuticals already, so you can't be on psych- psychiatric medications when going through MDMA. It's contra- clear contraindication. Um, people with a uh, history of psychosis or mania, not a good idea to open up the doors of perception even further. So there are a few cardinal contraindications. So the felt experience, it comes on, um, you get really aware, and you start to feel what we could essentially describe as love. Ease, comfort, safety, bonding, curiosity, openness. Maybe a more neutral word would be open versus love. I think they're very synonymous. Um, So that opening feeling with the alertness and the curiosity with a facilitator who knows at least some of your background and trauma narrative. Well, at least three sessions, right? Before the first time that you do it. At least three sessions. Ideally longer, ideally more. Ideally people have a therapist or, or a coach, mentor, guide, some kind of elder or somebody that they're able to talk with that knows them, that's here for them, that consistently offers that safety and security in a connective, supportive, positive relationship to be able to be the person to help them land the plane, so to speak, after all this. So when that's all in place, then you have the ability to go even further and deeper and wider and know that you're going to be held on the other side. So you can get really open and you can get really radically vulnerable with whatever's just right underneath the surface. So we don't really have to go as facilitators fishing for what we think is the deeper material. Like, let's trust the process. It's kind of like peeling back the curtain and seeing what's right there. Do you find a lot of the time that your patients are bringing up the most pertinent, most important stuff on their own? It may be. It may be the core wound is right under the surface. It may be that the core wound is expressing itself through something more recent or maybe even something a little less intense. Like, let's just test the waters and make sure that this is safe to get through. Like, can you hold me through this? If you can't hold me through this, I'm not ready. You're not ready. We're not ready to get into the trenches and and really dredge the the riverbanks. And in my experience, once we've done the preparation work, it's usually pretty close. It's to right the there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So somebody's lying there. You have this dyad, this dialogos that's going on, which is typically masculine and feminine to reflect masculine and feminine energy. Is the person lying eyes closed with a towel on? Are you allowing them to intersperse talking with you with music? What what's happening there? Yeah. Yeah, great question. So because the medicine has a little bit of an arc to come on, it comes on over the course of about an hour, 
depending a little bit on the dose. Depend, and the depends ma- if you get shitty drugs from a guy in an Ibiza <laughs> nightclub. Sometimes it doesn't come on all night. <laughs> good point. <laughs> so so let's assume that you're getting good molecule. Yep. Uh, it, it comes on and you get to cruise altitude at around the hour mark. So that can be nice to have a person with a blindfold, with a playlist, with a curated playlist. Um, no vocals, no words, especially in their native language, something that's really soothing and just generally opening and gradually opening for that hour. And then invite them to come out of the, the at least the music, oftentimes keep the blindfold on and start checking in. How's it going? How are you feeling? Are you noticing anything? And and ask it, ask open-ended questions and let them just start. Some people will still be pretty silent, and some people will be just jabber boxes. And 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 if somebody's just like you know going for it, like the 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 verbal psychic hose is open in the on position, great, then let's just harvest. And let's like, what's that like? What's that like? Tell me more. Like, okay, great. Is there anything deeper? Is there anything under that? And then when we start getting in, you can start telling, you, you can just read the the trauma narrative, the trauma languaging, the, tra- the somatic experience if we're at the core issue. And if we're there, then we'll explore that. And if there, if we get the sense that there's something deeper, great. Is there anything below that? Is there anything behind that? Or if it's about a particular cardinal person in their lives, can we understand what that relationship was like for you, what the experience was like for you? And then eventually it oftentimes gets to this place like, okay, can we understand the experience from their position? So not to only go through the healing of it, but actually also to be able to have a compassionate view and a greater understanding as to how they were involved in that too. Like, oh, my dad, yeah, he was a dick. You know, he did X, Y, and Z, or he didn't love me in the way that I wanted him to, or like all these things. And then let me just be clear, that was my experience in a healing process with my dad. I had this vision like my dad needed to love me a particular way, or my dad was largely um, like the Mar- a, a combination of the Marlboro man and, this, and a CIA agent. <laughs> and I was always trying to, as a little dude, and I didn't grow up with my mom and dad. I, I just visited him occasionally, like every other weekend. I was constantly trying to do enough to just get his kudos. And, and that's largely what generated so much performance. And, but there was also this resentment, like, wow, I, I, it's like I always had to work for it. And then in one of my ceremonies, this is actually when I was doing my apprenticeship. This is with ayahuasca, but this is the same kind of trauma recovery that happens with MDMA too. I saw him as a child and the fact that he didn't, he wasn't raised by either his, either of his parents. He was raised by his grandmother. She was amazing, um, but neither of his parents were really ready to be parents. And, and I think there was an experience of rejection and it was just like a hard road for him early on. So he was largely self-made. And just kind of grinned and just knuckled down like a lot of our parents and grandparents did. Just pushed on, head down, push on, move through. And thankfully, this is why I describe this process as the, as the privilege to heal. We have this growing privilege to heal. where We have the, these tools that many of our ancestors didn't have. And so we're carrying a lot of their burdens and traumas. So when we can get to a place, particularly with our parents, and be like, okay, what's behind that what's behind it from their side what was their experience like where did that come from because 
oftentimes transgenerational trauma happens in a way that feels like ours. But when you get under the hood, we realize it didn't start with us. It's still ours to heal. And it's a, and it's a part of the privilege to heal it because now we can heal something our ancestors have been carrying that they just weren't able to access the tools for. It's a little bit like being a bookstop. You know, you have Corey, mutual friend of ours, he talks about um, when someone gets angry at him and he often thinks of it like a virus. So he thinks, I wonder who gave you that anger? And I wonder who gave them that anger? And I wonder who gave them that anger? And it gets passed down and passed down and passed down. And he talks about it in a mindfulness setting. And he says, the mindfulness gap, the beauty of being able to have a beat pause between stimulus and response to choose whether or not you want to take that anger and then pass it down to the next person that you see that day that cuts you up in traffic or serves you the wrong drink in Starbucks. That's your choice. And you are right. There, there, there is a, a degree of privilege there that you think, right, there's this virus, this whatever, this transgenerational trauma, which has been passed down. My mother's mother and her mother and the mother before have all been like this, but I'm not going to be like that. And I have the opportunity to take the beat, to use this mindfulness gap or to use some psychotherapy assisted by a medicine to yeah, to stop that. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful opportunity to have that. This may be um, my party background talking, but my recall from times on MDMA has been sketchy to say the least. Is there mm -hmm. a difficulty with integrating the lessons that people learn whilst they're on MDMA mm -hmm. because of the fact that, well, I mean, I, how much of that's because of the fact I was drunk? Um, and, <laughs> and, and is there a difficulty with recall? For sure, this is a great question. And you're highlighting one of the, the beauties and the challenges with this kind of work because it, it engenders an altered state. So by definition, we're not in our usual kind of frame of mind. And so all of the experience is cataloged through a different veil and energetic of consciousness, so to speak. So we have to pierce that veil and be able to access those files. It's kind of like, it's kind of like that experience is held on an external hard drive. And we have it on the hard drive. We just have to know how to like wormhole back to it. And so I think a few things are relevant to your question and your experience. Alcohol has a huge impact on memory. We know that. And I imagine that it wasn't just like a swig here and there. There was probably a, a, a I was, healthy. I was degree. sending it. I was fully sending it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So that's going to have an effect. The setting is going to have an effect. Particularly in a party setting, there's so much energy and it, attention outward. And the feedback experience is very much in the middle world, in the outer world, right? And in a therapeutic setting, it's very much in the internal world, in the curious landscape, where you're actually having the input that's coming towards you is one of facilitating awareness versus in a party scene oftentimes the input that's coming in isn't facilitating inner awareness it's the, the thing what people are looking for when they take mdma at a party is to enhance that collective effervescence right mm -hmm. that's exactly they're looking to you hear people use the terminology i lost myself in the music right as, which is as opposed to finding yourself in you which is right. what you guys are trying to do so that the framing the right. set and setting um, focusing the attention 
inwardly or outwardly, that's that's an interesting insight. Yeah, because it's a, it's a medicine of opening, right? So you're going to open to something that's happening externally, the 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 collective, the music, the vibe, that energetic. Or are we going to open to what's internal? And when you have a facilitator that's constantly referencing you to the internal, it's really helpful. And oftentimes helping you get back on the track because it's like you can be open and get down a wormhole of your mind that's not super helpful. Or it's not like getting to the root cause of the issue that you've come in for. So the therapist and guide can oftentimes like bring it back to that common thread. And so the experience with MDMA is usually around four to six hours. Um, if you level up again, the entry dose is usually around 120 milligrams. The, the level up after two hours is about half of that dose. And then it turns into a six to eight hour experience. So it depends on the time signature and how much there's a, there is to go through. Most people will re-up. Um, particularly, a, a lot of important work is is getting done. Like I've, I've done all this prep work to get to here, so I'm going to get as much out of it as I can. Yeah. And oftentimes it can feel really pleasant, especially if somebody's been really walled off and, gartered, and, and guarded and the psychic armor has been heavy. Not to say that trauma work is pleasant, but there's a, an experience that can, that can feel affirming and and strengthening liberating like, as wow. well i imagine yeah and liberating yeah like wow it oftentimes doesn't feel liberating in the moment well cancer clay it, it very much can especially if you're if you're consciously engaging the process of recognizing the lightness that comes from shedding the old story and being able to see it in a new light so that can feel both not only strengthening but very much liberating yeah totally Talk to me about reintegration and the end of it, because I've had some fucking brutal come downs in my time, and <laughs> i I don't want to be I don't want to be ordering a Domino's to the MDMA center and asking them to turn off the lights and and send me a, a like a packet of Coca Cola in or something. Right, totally. And so by the come down and the integration, you mean like how you felt afterwards? Correct. Yeah. And so when we talk about integration, um, if you're in a recreational setting, integration is primarily around how you feel, <laughs> right? Versus if you're in a therapeutic setting, integration is very much about what you learned, right? So the integration is kind of like, let's harvest. We can oftentimes benefit the integration by taping, recording the session, and then going back through the notes. Because now you have it all, your hard drives right there and alive, and you can just like plug in your thumb drive. Versus it being stuck in a particular file that you have to actively investigate, potentially even with the help of a facilitator or a member. Because that facilitator is going to cue you because they're tracking your process. They're going to be like, oh, so tell me more about how that, how going through that experience was. So they can drill down when you're in a slightly different conscious state. Right. Yeah, because... I suppose having the facilitators there, one of the worst things about recreationally taking any of these sort of compounds, especially let's say psilocybin, which I, I think people are starting to take mushrooms just on their own. Someone's interested in their own consciousness. This is why I've taken it before, but I haven't taken it in a fully qualified therapeutic setting. And one of the brutal things about that is that as you're having the experience and some interesting insights come to you, 
the onus is on you to be able to recall them once you're out of it. And there's a certain degree of pressure that sits below the surface where you, you, you see something or you realize something or you, you notice something and you go, right, that's, that's fucking awesome. And you try and get the pad and pen out before your mind falls away from it. And I remember particularly trying to write, <laughs> trying to write something down. And as I was writing it on my, my pad and paper, I looked at my arm and the colors of my arm looked like tiger's arms. And I went back to look at what I wrote down and it wasn't the thing that I put before. I just wrote my arms. My arms look like tiger's arms. And I'm like, no, that wasn't the one that I meant. I meant the fucking interesting <laughs> insight about my soul, not the fact that I have arms that look like tiger's arms. <laughs> totally. I just solved the riddle of the universe. Yeah, exactly. Fucking oh, tiger and arms. I forgot it. Yeah, fall flat on my face. <laughs> right. So it can be helpful to record, to audio record that versus trying to transcribe so much because that, that motor system might be a bit offline. And when we have a facilitator that's able to help us track it or the audio recording that's able to help us track it, then we can stay more actively in the process. And we're not trying to have a part of our brain that's tracking it and a part of our brain that's that immersed in it. gets let, let rid of, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so the integration sessions are really about harvesting and, and going through that and looking at the, the principal themes, looking at um, the areas that perhaps we were really able to get in pretty easily or those things that we really wanted to stay away from, but then gradually opened up. Um, what was the pacing of it? What was the energetic tone of it? Um, how am I feeling coming out of it? So that's a, a, another thing that we'll get to. Um, and all of that starts to turn into the new story. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, with these as clarigens, seeing the deeper aspect of our being, reclaiming these parts of ourself that our ego has been so focused on, consciously or not, suppressed or repressed, now we're liberated from that and even more empowered to write the new story, to create the new self-image, to create the new relationship with life, relationship with our partners, all so th that. This is something that interests me. So I can fully appreciate why the use of MDMA creates an environment in which someone can feel comfortable enough to talk about their traumas. You have the facilitators there who are able to draw out of them in a professional setting and kind of guide them to the, the answers and the questions that they need to be asking themselves. But how does this contribute to lasting lifestyle change long-term once you're out of this session? You're, you're now hitting it on the head. This is where the rubber meets the road. If we were to talk about in a pie-shaped distribution of like the energetic... Uh, priority hour uh like like if you had so many marbles in a jar like how much how many of those marbles are going to preparation experience and integration it's about a, a five to ten percent preparation uh 30 to 40 percent experience 50 to 60 percent integration the majority of the work happens in the integration because that's where we make lasting change and this is where it's vital to have some kind of truth-telling process because if you go through an experience and you and you learn the <laughs> riddle of the universe and you forget it that's a big fucking bummer and so you want to have some kind of truth-telling recording device or process and you want to have an accountability structure 
So now how am I going to hold myself accountable? How's my therapist going to hold me accountable? How's my coach, my guide going to hold me accountable for acting on that truth? Because we can't unlearn what we just learned. You won't unsee what you just saw. Right? Now it's open. The genie's out of the bottle. Like now, and usually what that means is now taking more ownership and responsibility. And that has its opportunity, massive payoff for benefit, but it also has some detriment because if we start taking massive responsibility for our life, that means we can't blame anybody else for our experiences. And so there's there can be a lot of um, processing the grief in order to get mature in here and now. Like what, what life was lost because I was maybe, you know, orienting towards all of these things that I now realize were, were not, um, the, the greater, deeper, more integrated aspects of myself. But maybe all that was exactly what needed to happen for me to get here. Right. So there's so much reconfiguration now that happens in the worldview, self view, life view, having an accountability structure to be able to act on that truth, act on those new choices is vital. And then the third thing is having a positive community, a community around not necessarily this kind of work. It could be. I was going to say, do you ever, do you ever try to provide that for people? For sure. Yeah. I, so over the last three years, I created um, a platform called full spectrum medicine. And every week we would do integration calls because I, because it was clear that so many people were going through experiences and getting just way out there and maybe big things happening, but didn't have any integration support. And so it's like floundering around. So I, it was free. I'm not doing it right now because I'm launching Kuya. So I put that on pause, but we cataloged 18 months of uh, our video recordings all on integration support for free, just to have a safe place for people to come experience uh, a community of transformation growing and, and evolving together and supporting each other. We'd have anywhere from, it was relatively small, um, at any one time, there was probably between 20 and 80 participants on a Zoom call platform. And we'd have people cycle in and out and we'd record all of the, I would share topics of integration, like um, tools, strategies, techniques, things to do, um, things to not do as well. And then we would do question and answer at the end and we have somebody in the power seat that might be going through a really challenging process with their integration. Um, and I would support them, coaching them through it while the rest of the group was kind of looking in as as sacred witnesses, so to speak. And I've trained a bunch of facilitation guides to do this kind of work. So I, so a lot of that community was a variety of people, some people just kind of casually exploring, some people guiding, facilitating others. So it was a really rich conversation. And, and the community piece is vital. Because for me, I know when I started waking up, so to speak, with ayahuasca, I realized Man, I love a lot of my friends and a lot of them are not on the same trajectory anymore. And it wasn't a make wrong. It wasn't like I was better and they were worse. It was just like, I'm going down this path and this path is really vital. And that included like saying no to a daily cannabis habit that I had had for five years. And my, my riding buddies and my climbing buddies and my, my party buddies, you know, we, we I had so much fun with those guys. But it was clear that I was going, and I also moved out of the country and down to the jungle, and everybody thought I was just off my freaking rocker. So it was clear that it was easy for me to plug into a different community. But the reason I'm just bringing that up is oftentimes it's really freaking hard for people. 
when they start going through a process of waking up and, and reclaiming ownership, power, responsibility, and you look around, you're like, okay, is are those the kind of values and virtues that the, my current tribe is vibing at? Are they supporting the growth that I'm going through? Am I feeling like they're like wind at my back or they kind of like lead weights? And it can be a it can be a hard road if it feels like the community is not supporting the trajectory that you want to take. What would be some of the characteristics of the type of person who wouldn't succeed at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy? What would be the sort of things that they would do afterward? How would they integrate suboptimally? How would they enter the session suboptimally? What would be some of those things? That's a phenomenal question. Um, if I was to recognize, if I was, if I was to like translate your question into a way that I could make more context and answer more clearly, I would say like, what might be the factors that would set up a less than optimal MDMA experience to happen and then to get integrated? And I would say, okay, the facilitation is lousy, right? So they're not going to be able to hold a strong account accountability structure. Like if I go into the gym and I know I'm, I'm, I'm working on performance measures, I want a coach that's going to hold me accountable, that's going to help me see like where I was and where I'm getting to. Um, and But most facilitation with MDMA, because of the legal structure, they have to be good yep. in, in the States. All of it right now is happening with clinical trials. But there are a lot of underground facilitators who aren't that good. Maybe they're good sitters, but they might not be, not be very good facilitators. So if, if deep trauma comes into the space and the, and the container can't hold it, and the facilitation can't hold it, then it can get messy. And now you've got all this trauma re-wounding in the space, impregnating the field, but it's not getting worked through. So it's like, well, that's great. Now I'm just left with all this mess and I like, who's going to help me clean it up? So that can be a factor. Another factor can be um, the expectation that the medicine is going to fix something because the medicines are not here to fix anything. They're here to show us truth and they're here to help support us do our work in order to become more whole humans. And if a person thinks that they're going to go through a process and they're just going to magically pop out the other side, awesome, and life's awesome, and they're not willing to put in the work, then that expectation can be a handicap. Uh, and that expectation can also potentially look like that they, they think the work is going to be easy. Sometimes the work's not freaking easy. Like What started me on the ayahuasca path was a prayer to help me open up my heart. I was going through a separation and divorce and I couldn't feel it. And I didn't want to live that way. Um, so I didn't realize the answer to that prayer was going to be eight years of going through all the trauma that had shut off my heart in the first place. <laughs> so there were times in the integration where I thought like, this isn't supposed to be happening. <laughs> this wasn't in the fine print. Fuck. So, you know, so I blew a fuse. Something's off. We're, we're, you know, in a nosedive. And that was just an expectation of what I thought was going to happen didn't happen. It happened in a different way. It happened in a better way. It happened in a way that I wouldn't have chosen but was orchestrated for my best outcome. And it's helpful to have a validation team and community to lift each other up, to reference the growth that we're doing together, to be able to, cheer, to, be able to cheerlead each other on because this isn't easy work. 
there is a massive amount of global calamity and crisis and pain happening that's not just current that's mountains of unhealed residue from past traumas from past cultural traumas global traumas a ton of trauma is getting brought current right now so by no means is this easy work and we need to be in communities where we're lifting each other up in order to do the good work so that we can unburden our children and the coming generations from having to carry our shit because they're going to have a lot on their hands without carrying our stuff too to deal with you're going to have your work cut out over the next few years then i think probably so what is the roadmap for the next i think it seems like the next 18 months or so are going to be pretty exciting what's the roadmap that you see from here on out for mdma assisted psychotherapy Mm -hmm. yeah i think your point's a good one we've got a lot of good work uh and ideally fun ahead too um i do have a very clear sense that if 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 this isn't fun then then we're missing some of it (laughs) because being in a body if you can't make mdma fun (laughs) <laughs> give up. Right. Dude. I mean, it's a pretty forgiving medicine. It, it has a phenomenal success rate. Um, it's amazing to see people go from being really walled off and hurt and in the somatic experience of trauma to being really free and really released and really available to work through that trauma. Not to say, again, that it's fixed and done, but it's it's pretty magical to help people go through these kind of processes. So I think we're going to train. Uh, I am not, I'm, I'm a spokesperson and educator and an advocate for this work. I'm not formally affiliated with the MAPS organization that's, that's involved in doing the majority of the training. Uh, I support their organization for sure. And without them, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, so they're in charge of training as many facilitators as possible. And we're going to need somewhere on the order of 50 plus thousand facilitators over the next five to 10 years. And we're going to have five to 6,000 centers doing this kind of work over the next five to 10 years. We're going to gradually roll out this medicine and this next wave of the psychedelic and psychiatric renaissance with medicine work, we're going to continue to roll that out as the new growing standard of care. I see allopathic Western medicine has turned largely into functional medicine when it's done well, but it's still relatively reductionistic. And now functional medicine is turning into transformational medicine, which is now we're going to have the data to show. We already have the data. And when we start bringing the, the software sciences, mind and soul, with the hardware sciences, body and brain, right? You got psychology and neurology. You bring those next level medicine practices. So regenerative medicine with the psychedelic therapies. When you bring those together, now you've just created a whole new medical framework that actually gets to the root cause issues and starts to help us transform better than we ever thought imagined. Sick. Absolutely sick. Dr. Dan Engel, ladies and gentlemen, a dose of hope. The story of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy will be linked in the show notes below on Amazon. And if people want to keep up to date with whatever else you're doing, where should they go? Uh, yeah, you can uh, go to my website. That's one, drdaneingle.com. Full Spectrum Medicine, I mentioned. Um, again, it's a free platform. I just want to give people 
information on this kind of work. And then Kuya, our center that opens in two weeks, is uh, kuya.life. How do you spell that? Uh, K-U-Y-A dot life, L-I-F-E. Kuya means love in Quechua. And so we want to continue to give um, just mad respect to the origins of a lot of these medicines and, and the communities where they've come from and, and have a good reciprocal relationship to be able to give back to the communities where a lot of these medicines have, have come from and make sure that we're working with these medicines in sustainable ways. MDMA, because it's it's a synthetic, we can make that in a lab and scale that in mass. Um, but many of the other medicines, peyote, ayahuasca, San Pedro, 5-MeO-DMT from the Sonoran Desert Toes, iboga, these are all natural medicines that take a long time to grow. And we're harvesting at accelerated rates that are stripping out our supply. I had uh, I had Hamilton Morrison uh, about six oh, months cool. ago, just after, as his Vice series, his most recent one, um, oh, sorry, his Hamilton's Pharmacopia, I don't know if it's still done by Vice, uh, as that was on. And obviously he was very, very forward about trying to save the Bufo Alvarius, uh, about uh, proposing that people use a synthetic version of 5-MeO instead of a an organic right. version. So it's it's beautiful when you see everything, uh, multiple people within similar industries or analogous industries coalescing around similar talking points, talking about sustainability within the plant medicine world. Uh, it definitely seems like that's going to be a huge push over the next few years. Mm, yeah. I It has to be. Because if not, then we're going to lose a lot of the the traditions that have been in place for hundreds and thousands of years. And it's, it's irresponsible to the coming generations. Uh, we have, we have the opportunity to work with these really powerful, very beautiful and sacred technologies and how, how do we live sustainably? I mean, you know, it's the same relationship with our fossil fuels, with the ocean acidification, with like, blah, 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 we can fill in the gap. Like how do we continue to live in right relation with the medicine kingdom, with the traditional cultures and communities, with all people, and also be mindful of our impact for the generations to come. So I'm so glad. I didn't see that uh, from Hamilton, but he's he's always got a good story to tell. And, 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 and I appreciate his story around sustainability. Dan, thanks so much for today. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me on, man. 